0: Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today uh, we're joined by one of the good guys. It's Ben Simon uh, from a firm called Crypto for Charity. And what they're doing is basically helping all you DGENs out there uh, lower your tax bill by uh, donating some of your crypto or NFT proceeds. Uh, So, Ben, how are you? It's great to see you. It's
1: great Great to see you, too. I'm doing well and very happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for being here.
0: Uh, So I know you're in New Haven, Connecticut today. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about your background? Is that where you grew up?
1: Sure. I, I grew up actually just outside of Washington, D.C., one of the few people who was actually born in D.C., which tends to be a pretty sort of transient place. Wound up in New Haven by way of D.C. and San Francisco as sort of professional life um, here, mainly because I'm following my wife, who is, uh, works at the Yale Art Gallery.
0: <laughs> Good man. Always follow the wife. <laughs>
1: We are, we are what's known as trailing spouses, in, in <laughs> cabin, um, where a lot of people have either a connection to Yale yeah, or their, their spouses do.
0: So looking into your background, you know, you've been an organizer uh, for many, many years. Did that kind of get into your blood being from D.C.? Was that something your family was into or into politics in general?
1: was a little bit. The idea of sort of social change and of being, of, of making a difference in the world was definitely something I, I grew up with. Um, my mom actually passed when I was very young and there's a, a living will, a you know, letter she left for both me and my older brother, which exhorts us to not seek wealth, but rather to seek um, sort of making a difference in the world. So I think that's always something I've taken. Oh, wow. Taken yeah, around. that's
0: powerful. And what did your father do?
1: Um, they were both lawyers, actually. Um, they met, my parents met on a sort of youth civil rights stuff. So they both grew up in Philly and did like a, a, a lobby, organized a lobby day in high school for um, the Voting Rights Act. And so they met in the sort of organizing for different high schools coming together for that. Yeah. Got married from there. And they both wound up being being attorneys, but always had that kind of social justice bent to, to what they were doing and how they were living. Okay, cool.
0: Um, and you mentioned you have an older brother is, how's he doing?
1: He's well, he is an AI philosopher or uh, sort of philosophy of mind, oh, really? um, professor works at okay. and teaches at the university of Montreal.
0: Oh, wow. So AI is an in artificial intelligence.
1: Yeah. So he's the, his thesis and dissertation was and sort of early work was all on the nature of consciousness. And so that's become obviously rather, Just- yeah, ra- ra- rather a relevant topic these days.
0: Yeah, no kidding. I bet he's busy. His phone must be ringing. He
1: is. We've we've done various noodling on if we could figure out some sort of fun, like Dolly 2 based uh based drop, though I haven't quite come up with the hook yet.
0: Yeah, that's that's gotta be coming, right? You think people in crypto? I mean
1: there's definitely been some already. I've seen a lot of mid-journey stuff happening.
0: Did you guys get along when you were kids?
1: Well enough. Uh he was five years older than me. And so I think mm-hmm. we were not so close as to be kind of deep rivals in any, in anything really. Um, and, you know, but also, you know, we, we, it's not like we were, we were buds, right. It was a, a pretty substantial age difference. Yeah.
0: yeah. let me say, I'm, I'm asking that as an older brother myself. So, um, yeah, I know the, the brother relationship is, is love, hate, you know,
1: <laughs> it's, it's become much, much better as a, um, as grownups.
0: It sounds cool that you guys can collaborate or just, you know, kind of like speak the same language and stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Were you an athlete as a kid or were you always in, into books or what was your, what were you like?
1: Both, actually. So I always did quite well in school. Um, and, but also was on the football and wrestling team. Um, briefly flirted with the idea of playing football in, in college and d- did not, uh, for which I am thankful. But uh, yeah. did some like did did sort of club wrestling, right? So not not super competitive, but went to some meets and stuff.
0: All right, cool. Um, and then I noticed, y- you know, you you have you, you worked for the DNC for a while uh, in the Obama um, under Obama, and so again, I guess it, it's it seems like. The Washington kind of those got into you and your parents, like you're uh, exhorting you to, to try to do good in the world. Um, can you tell me just a little bit about that?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, I, I, when I was in university, when I was in college, I really thought I wanted to do development economics and, and work in Latin America or something like that. Um, and I got involved in electoral campaign my junior year of college, which was back in 2006. It just, I just loved it. It just, just like gave me the the kind of immediate adrenaline rush. loved the battle of it. loved the the pace of it, and really gave me the bug. And so, sort of ditched ditched the plans is that for
0: like a local candidate or somebody in Congress.
1: Back in two thousand six, uh, it was a while ago, but you may recall the Iraq War being still a, a very live issue. The I was a student at Yale as well, and there's our senator was a man named Joe Lieberman, who was the vice-presidential nominee back in 2000, colossal piece of shit, and uh, was a huge proponent of the Iraq War. And so there was a guy named Ned Lamont who was willing to take him on in the primary and really make the primary about the yeah. war, despite all the times we had to say that it wasn't really about the war. Obviously, it was about the yeah. war. Um, and so worked on that primary campaign and helped beat him, and then we lost in the general. But it was, it was a good time. And now, uh, you know, <laughs> Everything comes full circle and he's my governor.
0: Well, again, yeah. So, but you heard it here first, Joe Lieberman, colossal piece of shit.
1: Um, <laughs> we'll stand by that statement to the end.
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember as a you know young reporter, uh, I was in Oakland, California, and I would cover the city council and just getting that back behind the scenes kind of look at politics and stuff. I could definitely get a sense of the excitement and kind of the, the adrenaline that you mentioned that, you know, that can be involved in it. Are you like a campaign guy? Like that's what gets, you know, the, the adrenaline going, or do you like to be, you know, kind of policy and, and stuff like that as well?
1: More campaign than policy, for sure. Um, I had a, a conversation with someone who'd be a bit of a mentor for me when I was just getting started, who told for her story about how she had for a while been thinking about going to grad school in environmental studies because she really wanted to save the planet and had had this conversation with someone who's like, we know how to save the planet. We just need to build the political will to do it, right? We don't need, we don't need you to, to become a master in environmental science. We need you to get more people on board for the solutions we already have. And that was really influential, sort of an influential moment for me of thinking about like, I don't, I'm a smart guy, but I'm, I don't think that I'm going to come up with the, the the solution that solves the battery storage problems, right? But I think I can do something to help create the political space to make that happen or whatever. That's sort of the what brought me into the campaigning sphere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of cooks needed in the kitchen. I noticed also that you served uh, for Green, with Greenpeace for several years. Was that, sorry, if I have this right, was your political work first and then you moved into Greenpeace after that?
1: Yeah, so I moved into sort of more issue oriented work. Um, There's a couple of years in the middle there where I was working for Mozilla, which is the, the you know Firefox, Firefox browser, and also a nonprofit. And so I was the doing, foundation. yeah, yeah. So I was doing like tech organizing and um, and fundraising, and that's actually the first the first time I intersected all with crypto because I my my greatest my greatest financial one of my greatest financial regrets is probably in 2011 when people were getting in touch with us saying, can we donate Bitcoin to you? And rather than being curious and saying, huh, I wonder why these smart internet people are talking about Bitcoin, I should look into it. We were just like, what the fuck is this fake internet money you're talking about, let's, uh, we need real no money, please. Yeah,
0: you and me, brother, like I missed the boat on that one, like entirely. <laughs> I guess I was a reporter, so I have a bit of an excuse cause it would sort of have been a conflict of interest, but I would have gladly taken that conflict of interest to be retired right now. Indeed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so I spent a little bit of it. Off. Basically, I left the, DNC, the Democratic National Committee when we launched, or shortly after we launched the re-election campaign for President Obama, had the choice of move to Chicago and, on the real, and work on the re-elect or move to California to be still with my wife, who was starting a PhD at Stanford. And so, you know, as a sort of thing of Long-distance relationships over 18 months on a presidential campaign tend not to work out.
0: Yeah, that's a tough one. So were you in San Francisco working for Greenpeace?
1: I was in San Francisco, yeah, for a couple of years with Mozilla, and then for about the four or five years with Greenpeace, doing essentially internal consulting. So working to help on campaign strategy and help with Greenpeace as essentially a like federation of about 30 different national and regional offices. So you know Greenpeace USA, Greenpeace Canada, Greenpeace Brazil, whatever they're all separate independent nonprofits but part of this bigger hole under the umbrella of Greenpeace International. So I was working with those different offices and some global campaigns on ways of working, on campaign strategy, on how to engage more people. Um, and then in 2017, the unit that I was working with spun out from Greenpeace to then work. Um, with other, like, sort of analogous campaigning organizations, right? So groups like Amnesty International or Oxfam or UNICEF or Save the Children or, you know, et cetera, et cetera.
0: That must have been, like, maximum street cred in San Francisco to work for Greenpeace.
1: Um, yes. <laughs> you, you
0: know, <laughs> it's about as crunchy as you can get.
1: <laughs> oh, well, you'd be surprised, right? So there's a lot of, like, oh, you're, you know, you're, like, main, mainstream environmentalist. You know, you're, uh, oh. you're, you're too... <laughs> too too centrist for my blood
0: but of course you're not you aren't strapping yourself to a tree i mean come on what are you doing
1: i did i did get trained for that um i did i did a i did a climbing training for you know how to climb structures
0: was julia butterfly up in the tree around that time wasn't it somewhere do you remember her
1: i i don't know that
0: name Uh, she was up in a redwood uh for a long time and, oh, nice. like, okay. and, yeah she was living up there and so trying to protect I think the old growth forest in Northern California
1: yeah I think there's less there's less that we did the, in, at least the time that I was there that was about like kind of that that sort of specific piece and more about um, you know putting yourself in a way where people have to pay attention in order to drive some some specific message there was a great. The action that I didn't have anything to do with planning this, but there was a, the the action that I remember most was like very shortly after Trump's inauguration, we managed to get, to drop this gigantic banner in sort of perfect sight of the White House from, from somewhere, some construction crane, sort of like a Mm. block away or something like that, made for a, a very nice, very nice photo op.
0: And what did it say?
1: Honestly, I forget. (laughs) <laughs> um, but you know, it was it was a, a worthy message and generated a bunch of uh, sort of good news cycles.
0: It was it was just a big middle finger, I bet.
1: It probably honestly said resist, <laughs> which I'm now remembering was like the tagline okay. of of the of the age. Right? No, no. I mean, basically, it's a big middle finger to him. But it was, it, you know. New- newspapers can't print the print the profane message, so you got to yeah. keep it clean
0: if you want to be in the. You yeah, want to get on the front page, yeah, exactly. Did you find um, like the DNC and Greenpeace were the? Were you able to work inside of them, or was it frustrating to be in sort of a larger organization? Or how, how did you find that um, for like the goals that you had for yourself and kind of what your mom was exhorting you to do? You know, for all, all of your life, basically.
1: It's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, yes. Yes to both. Um, I found myself uh, pretty, pretty well able to work inside of complicated bureaucracies. And for whatever reason, the way my brain works uh, is good for like, understanding and existing within them and trying to figure out kind of the leverage points and how to it was basically internal internal campaigns that we had to run. Regularly to get yeah to get anything organization. done yeah um, and so it's the same it's applying the same set of critical thinking tools and strategy tools to um, to colleagues which is weird but <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, but it did but it did work and it was we you know, we were able to have some impact um, I definitely think about there's there's some there's some of the stuff that the organization especially with Greenpeace. Um, does and argues for that I am like not a hundred percent uh aligned with uh, especially now, and so that you know there's there I do have moments of wondering like the wisdom of it all, but mm-hmm. i I do think it was you know ultimately on the side of the angels um, and trying to move things in the right direction in both cases uh yeah. but there's certainly limitations to what you can do as as like, there are there are limitations to what you can do as part of a a big giant apparatus and then there 's also uh, benefits to it, right? There's things you can leverage, there's people you can reach, there's feats you can attempt.
0: Yeah, the, I'm sure the name itself, just Greenpeace, you know, gets you in the door a lot of places. It um,
1: does. And it's also, you know, whatever resonance that has for those of us in the U.S., it was it really instructive to spend time working with, with offices around the world where uh, it's what, you know, if you imagine the United States environmental movement and the thinking about Sierra Club and whatever move on and, you know, the, the stuff move on does on the environmental side it's, and, and Greenpeace and
0: maybe Earth First or
1: something, all, you know, all yeah. that stuff. Like mm-hmm. that's basically it's, it's Greenpeace in a lot of countries. Like, there are some other smaller groups and certainly 350 has a presence in a lot of different places. But if you look at like a Germany or a Brazil Greenpeace is mainstream environmentalism, and yeah. so yeah. I mean that also winds up with some funny moments where you'll have Greenpeace Germany being like, "What? What do you mean you can't just get the secretary of state on the line? You know, <laughs> that's easy for us." Um, you know, there was yeah. there was some point where something like one third of Dutch households included a Greenpeace monthly donor.
0: Wow, wow.
1: which is, is ludicrous. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's the kind of thing like there is no organization that comes anywhere close to that in the U.S., mean, right? not, not just in the environmental space and not just on the left. The NRA doesn't come close to that. There's just no one who has that level of penetration because there's so many more players and like the sector itself is so much bigger here than anywhere else.
0: Yeah, it, it makes me wonder, do you, do you think navigating Yale successfully helped you kind of like go on this path? Was that sort of something that, that gave you a good grounding or were you just- maybe? To- through your classes. I
1: think, it? no, I mean, I, I think that it was really instructive for, I think I really learned how to how to think in more critically and um, take stock of situations. I was, you know, I was an economics major. I didn't want to do finance, but I was into learning the kind of logic-oriented thinking, um, which also has always been how my mind works, but really enhancing that. And it really taught me how to write. I think when I got to... High school was very easy for me, um, just uh, like it just was, right? And so, and when I got to Yale as a student, I my first semester put in about as much effort as I did in high school and got my ass kicked. And I re- and it really, it, it was like, oh, okay, I'm not quite the hot shit. I think I am because every person here was the hot shit, wherever they came out of. And yeah. so, it really took, yeah. you know, it, it took some effort to to get better. Um, and I don't know about that in terms of, you know, navigating organization, you know, probably got as much from like waitering as I did from Yale in terms of how to navigate bureaucracy and deal with people, but. Um, <laughs> yes,
0: waiting tables is a great thing. If, if you, yes, anyone wait tables, it's a great job. It'll teach you a million different things about life. Um, it's interesting, you, you think you bring up, you learn how to write and you learn how to think. And I always try to tell people, to write. You have to be able to think, you know, it really hones your thinking. So um, those things are absolutely connected. And um, it's great to hear too, that I I love that, that you had a college experience where, you know, you were sort of taught to think, or you you realize that this is how, this is what I want to get out of this, because I think that's, that's absolutely what college should be for people. Um, it shouldn't be an extension of high school where you're just maybe studying for a test. And it, really bums me out to see a lot of people kind of shying away from that in the college experience these days where they're, um, you know, banning books or saying that, they're, you know, I need a trigger warning here because it might, you know, introduce some thought that uh, I, I don't want to contemplate. I just, I, I really don't like the way that's moving.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I would I also say, you know, I think there's this sort of trend of more and more pre-professional stuff or, and degrees and focuses, which I think can be, can really short circuit, right? If you're learning to write for business before you're learning to write, it means what you write for business won't make any sense. (laughs) Right, and so it's like, how do you get, getting those, I mean, getting those building blocks is like the foundation of the theory behind of liberal arts education, which I think Mm -hmm. still has a tremendous amount of value.
0: Yes. What, um, do, do you have any, uh, what, what's your, one of your favorite experiences in Greenpeace? Were you like uh, overseas at all? And like you, you mentioned, you know, all the different offices that they have around the world. Um, is there something that stands out to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was able to, and I had the immense privilege of attending lots of different sort of campaign planning sessions of, on, on different issues that I care a lot about from sustainable agriculture to, you know, climate and energy policy. Um, and working with teams in places that matter and places I came to love that I hadn't had the privilege to, be t- to, to visit before. Right? So I think um, most specifically, I spent a bunch of time with the Greenpeace in Greece office, which, you know, who, who wouldn't love uh, <laughs> repeating re- re- there? But actually, like there was a, a t- one of the teams that I was a part of, the, the head of that team was both the executive director of the Greece office and the head of this little team. And so it made sense for us to come to have have meetings there and spend time with his office and that sort of thing. And Greenpeace, Mexico, I spent a bunch of time with as well. And I think, you know, in both cases, I think that what I found the most rewarding was spending an extended period of time over time. So not just like an intense week, but spending some time and then some more time and some more time over Mm -hmm. months and years with specific offices and specific campaign teams where I could really see sort of a meaningful shift in ways of working and how they were able to collaborate with themselves, how they were able to um, bring in insights from the outside and um, really shift the way their, their, their campaigns worked.
0: Yeah, I'm sure getting a lay of the land like that over time is really inv- invaluable.
1: I, w- I will say uh, like, on a very specific note, um, shortly after I started Greenpeace, we did a... So Greenpeace has has ships, right? There's these gigantic ocean-going vessels.
0: I was going to ask you if you rammed any whalers, but um, I, I, did. I thought that was maybe a little far afield.
1: <laughs> but there was sort of shortly after I started, there was this... Uh, there was an action that we did with sort of, um, uh, you know, to scale in the, in the North... I'm pretty sure in the North Sea, to share, to scale a Gazprom drilling platform. So Gazprom being the Russian, one of the big Russian...
0: Yep, natural gas company.
1: Uh, Russia really doesn't like it when outside groups um, embarrass them. And so after we did that, this is in 2013, after we did that, while we were in international waters, uh, the FSB, the sort of Russian FBI, um, took our ship by from the air. <laughs> like they, you know... Brought in a chop like brought in combat troops on choppers and or wow. like on at least one chopper and took the ship by force, towed it to Murmansk and then put everyone in jail. Um, yeah, so there wow. were thirty people, thirty people on board, including several people who are very much not Greenpeace people. It's like there's a photographer who we like hire as a contractor for mm-hmm. things like this, right? And there's a cook and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. And you know, and there's also people. Who like I could have been you know I wasn't there but there's a there's a 27 year old like social media manager who was just tweet you know doing the tweets and the Facebook posts and stuff of the action and like so she, you know it's it's a lot of people who from a lot of different countries in the world all trying to bring attention to this dangerous drilling in really dangerous terrain um, yeah. and they all spend three months in in jail with a pretty uncertain outcome in front of them. Uh, ultimately the, there's, you know, there's a ton of international pressure brought to bear. The Dutch were super helpful. It turns out that if you're going to get into international scrapes in a boat, it's really good to have that boat be Dutch flagged because mm. they take that very seriously. Um, and so they, they, pers- they basically pursued a number of actions in a number of different sort of international law fora. And that's
0: where those one in three Dutch households come exactly. in as Greenpeace
1: Well and, <laughs> members. And, just, it's, and it's also just Dutch, you know, the Dutch maritime tradition. The Dutch really, their their historical wealth and power comes from their, their shipping yeah. and commerce from that, right? So like, they, they take it super duper seriously.
0: Yeah, that's, I'm glad to hear they got out and everything was okay. Yes. Um, so we're up to around 2017-ish now when you're and 2018, somewhere around there. Did you? So, I know you had heard about Bitcoin way back in 2011. How did you? um When did it come back into your life?
1: We're half <laughs> half, half, half an hour into a crypto podcast and haven't talked about crypto.
0: That's how. That's how we do it here. That's the
1: yeah yeah. So I so in 2017, in late 2017, I had my first actual dalliance with 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 blockchain stuff. Basically on a whim, I saw a someone I. A, who, uh, who I respect, suggest to someone else, like, hey, you should buy some Ether, basically, because they, mm-hmm. they had posted, you know, someone had gifted them some Bitcoin at some point as kind of a lark, and they yeah. hadn't looked at it in several years, and it was like, hey, it turns out I have, you know, 10 grand of Bitcoin I didn't know I, I had, what should I do with it? And yeah. the other guy suggested sell it and buy ETH. Um, so I thought, sure, I'll buy some ETH. Um, why not? This seems like a, good, a good, good moment. I've been hearing something about it. And this was back at ETH, in the 300 ish range, right? So still fairly early. Yeah. Um and I put in I know, 10K, something like that. And, you know, saw saw number go way up, started doing a little bit of degen shit. Like I bought some Litecoin and some Ripple and had a couple other things, but mostly kept it in ETH. Saw number go way up, saw number go way down, and then basically just ignored it until, until late 2020, early 21. Um, it's kind of checked every now and again, but never really just like, whatever, this is not what I'm doing. Um, and I don't really know what this is, but I, but I, you know, I didn't sell, but I just waited.
0: And was it like the DeFi protocols that started coming out around that time, 2021, that sort of piqued your interest?
1: Yeah, it was, it was, it was the, De- it was all the DeFi stuff, definitely that sort of got me back in and some availability of investment capital. Cause I sold, we, we'd had a house in San Francisco that we Moved out of in 2018, but didn't sell, but rented. And then we sold it in early 2021. So I knew I had this, some capital coming in and decided to allocate a chunk of that to just going deeper in crypto and and actually diving in and and figuring this out. I had become, I had been getting, sort of starting to follow it more over the previous months, but hadn't really felt like I had like money to put in uh, to really shift anything. But then that was the, okay, here's the moment. I'm going to like,
0: what appealed to you? What appealed to you about it?
1: So I, I I've always been more drawn to, especially in that era, I was much more drawn to ETH world than Bitcoin world. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I found the the general culture to be much more of a fit. Um, the fact that the shift to proof of stake was always was always on the roadmap, it was always the plan, even if it even if it was getting pushed back by years and years the fact that from jump everyone knew they wanted to shift to a less energy intensive form of the protocol
0: yeah and let me just jump in here real quick because we're today is the, the day of the merge we're recording on september 14th and it's going to be an uh i don't know about eight hours or so so th- this isn't going to come out for a little while but just to, to market uh, we are here on the day of the merge we are a point that i like to make to people that the move to proof of stake was always in Vitalik's plan from the very beginning. It, it, you know, he just knew that he had to use proof of work for a certain amount of time until they could kind of figure out how to switch the network over. So, sorry to interrupt.
1: And I know, I'm, and you know, I'm I'm deeply sympathetic to the idea that this thing that he thought in in principle would be rather trivial turned out to be wildly complex and and far mm-hmm. more so than they than they realized. And like, so it took longer, and that's okay.
0: Yeah, a lot of a lot of dead ends, a lot of research has yeah. gone into this. I remember <clears throat> interviewing him in 2017 and he he thought that proof of stake would be um probably rolled out by the end of that year. <laughs> yeah. So, here we are 5 years 5 years later.
1: <laughs> and and I, you know, I remember early 2021 when I was sort of buying in more heavily, it was like, yeah, it will come, you know, Q3 this year and it's like, well, here we yeah. are. Um, you know, only only a year later, but 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 cool, we're here, you know, and the yeah. And the energy used in the interim you know matters but also in the grand scheme of things I you know it's not something that I'm that I'm wildly worried about
0: yeah it's a it's a tough one right because we don't know the energy use of Wall Street or of yeah. really the, the automobile industry or a lot of other industries where, whereas because blockchain is open and everyone can see um, the, the network you know it's like it kind of gets used against it i think in a way that doesn't seem exactly fair or at least apples to apples with
1: other yeah, things i think that's right i think ultimately what i what i try to sort of say to folks when they bring it up with me because certainly the, the fact that i've gone deep into crypto uh is uh surprising to some of my friends it is that you know if we as a society allocate um, and find it reasonable to use energy on lots of things that lots of us find silly and find find stupid, right? And so if ultimately you think Bitcoin and Ethereum and the whole the whole thing is an idiotic Ponzi that is just a waste of time and money, then yeah, of course you think it's dumb to spend carbon on it too, right? But if you think there's value to it, then it becomes about weighing the value you get from it versus other uses of carbon. and And it's much... That's a much, much, much different conversation, right? It is also the case that Bitcoin uses a lot of energy and I would really like it if we could figure out how to make that less true. Yeah. Um, but but, yeah, it's, but no, it's a much different conversation than just Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. It's like, yes, that's true. And there's a fair bit that Bitcoin brings to the table that society didn't have before. And let's talk about that.
0: Right, yeah, that's a great point. Um, uh unfortunately i hate to tell you but i don't think bitcoin is ever going to move away from how it works it's just they they don't really i mean no, it's, I agree. it's 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 just a shame because it's obviously a revolutionary technology um but it's just i think it's it's rather stuck with what it has and so um hopefully yeah, we've been trying to write, you know, there are other ways around, like, kind of, kind of doing renewable energy mining, you know, and things like that that can mitigate some of the effects. I think that's probably the best bet for yeah, the Bitcoin network. I think
1: that's right. Um, had a conversation some months ago with a, with a friend and former colleague about the Greenpeace campaign to get Bitcoin to switch to proof of stake, which I think is pretty silly because it's like there's not…
0: Is that one of the places you're diverging from them these days.
1: Um, right. Okay, but it, yeah. well, it's silly, but in the like, there's no who, who, who is the campaign
0: against? Well, they've apparently never been on crypto Twitter, right?
1: <laughs> you know, I mean, you could, you could theoretically, I could see how you could plan and launch an advocacy campaign targeting ETH. There's actually a, a, a coherent kind of developer community and there's the foundation and all this stuff, <clears throat> even more so something like Solana or, or whatever. But like, there's no there's no one whose door to knock on for Bitcoin. But yeah, so so in terms of what initially excited me, like it was it was the you know the DeFi as the application, um, but more more broadly, just the the potential and the, the idea of all these of all these things being enabled without this sort of requirement of an intermediary in financial transactions, right? And I think the big believer in the idea that I can't, I don't know. Like no way, no idea what the exciting application will be five years from now. But I do feel like it's a really um, exciting and interesting sort of set of set of technologies that were that were there are now at our fingertips. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And I, what I find endlessly fascinating is that Vitalik and the, the folks who brought Ethereum to life did so in a way where they're just providing a canvas for everyone else to paint upon you know and that, that was that was the whole idea and it's just it's it's simple but it's also brilliant and and so that's why we're seeing all these new applications in art and in music and and all sorts of other uh industries uh fashion that that are just because i was talking to somebody last night about this where people who come into this and then finally kind of wrap their head around it usually say oh this could be used to do this solve this problem i've been having in my industry you know and so all this new energy is coming in and i do think it's a a pretty welcoming environment um and and also it has that baseline foundation for you know building on top of it and so that's what i've always been quite excited about so now I think I'm pretty sure now I, I figure out why you now are doing crypto for charity, because you've got a whole bunch of crypto right? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, the tax bill is gonna be insane. So I better start figuring this out. Um,
1: unfortunately, not 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 nearly as much <laughs> as I'd like. But and and a lot of it is in the form of the the two things you see over over either shoulder there. Because basically, you know, my, my sort of journey, my journey deeper
0: was Well, for listeners, tell tell us what's behind you.
1: Behind me, I've got a ringer by Dimitri Turniak over my right shoulder, um, and a Meridian by Matt Delorier over my left shoulder, um, which are two, two of my two of my favorite series of generative art. Um, and you know, what what happened, and both, both on released on the Artblocks platform. And what, and so I know you've had Aaron Penny and Brian <laughs> yeah. Rickman on here before, and that you know, they're both Artblocks artists. Yeah. And you know, yeah. what what happened for me was basically so I, you know, I put this money in. And then I spent many moons, you know, sort of five or six months um, spending a lot of time exploring DeFi and doing doing various, you know, Pon- Ponzi-ish, some of them probably. But, like, you know, yield farming and and bridging the Polygon and doing stuff there and all this stuff. And then in late July, I had I totally ignored NFTs. Um and in late July and early August of 2021 is when I first, an art block's first kind of clocked on my radar. I actually went back and looked at my inbox to see if I had gotten any emails that mentioned referenced before, and I had. And I wish I'd read them. But um, it, this idea of so art blocks is you know generative art on the blockchain, where you have a you know a piece of work created by an algorithm. In a defined edition number that sort of will explore the algorithm to a to the extent the artist thinks is is worthwhile, Um, and you have the you know the provenance immediately like tied to the point of creation in the token on the chain. You have the code necessary to reproduce the work in any modern browser in the token on the chain, Um, and and this combination of all those things and the fact that I actually found a lot of the art really compelling as someone who's Spent a bunch of times. My my wife is an art historian, um, and I found a lot of it compelling. Uh, and that was the thing that really made the penny drop for me with NFTs. I was like, "Oh, this isn't yeah. this isn't a scam. This isn't someone just trying to cash in. This is like really interesting. And it's it's it wouldn't do, exist and be interesting in the same way without the blockchain technology. And that was the thing that was like, "Oh shit!"
0: Absolutely yeah oh shit i I was lucky enough to be in new york last year um when tyler hobbs um did uh he was releasing um his latest collection um with bright moments gallery and so you know it, 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 literally, he was standing there and it, they were unveiling the, the, the different NFTs, and it was the first time he'd ever seen them. And he's like live commentating on them as the person is in the audience who owns that NFT is listening. And it, I, I, I was just like, I just had goosebumps because I don't think you'd ever, you know, how, how, when do you ever see an artist who's never seen his own work before and then here it is right in front of him in an, in an audience in a setting? And it was just, it was something which, just uh, kind of which there? Do you
1: remember?
0: Yeah, Thursday. Uh, th- we, were, thir-
1: we were in the same. We were in the same super, super spreader event. No way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was there on. I was there on the Thursday night and got and came home with COVID.
0: I prefer not to remember it as a super spreader event, but you're absolutely right. I think everyone got COVID because that's when Omicron was sweeping I through. Mean, Manhattan. And it was before um, before
1: we realized what we were dealing with with Omicron. So we were like, ah, oh, it's cool. They checked vaccines at the yeah. door.
0: Oh, that's crazy. So you were there that night. I was
1: there that night. I, I helped to start wow. something called Grailer's Dow. Which is a essentially a collector DAO, f- which which was it's, it's sort of sort of like Flamingo, but less. Um, Flamingo is like every member is an accredited investor, U.S. LLC situation, and this is more of a like. And I, I hope to start. I wasn't like you know I mean I was one of the one of the people who sort of bought in, bought a couple of the earlier NFTs. Um, but basically, it was like, a, hey, let's put some money together to buy some incomplete controls. And so the Grailers Dow Treasury has yeah,
0: that's what it was. Yeah, what it was. I, I couldn't remember the name, in incomplete control or incomplete control. I love the name. The
1: the Treasury of the Grailers Dow Treasury has nine incomplete controls, um, along with a few awesome. other pieces that we've collected since. And the bright moment stuff is wonderful. So for folks who who maybe aren't familiar, it's a they do these in-person generative art exhibitions, essentially, where you can you can, yes. you can mint, mint a piece live from any number of artists. Um,
0: yeah, they started here in Venice. And I, uh, if anyone wants more information, I wrote a three part series on, on Bright Moments called The Betrayal of Bright Moments. It's on the Decentral website.
1: Is that about the hack of the, the Crypto Nations?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, about the guy who there's an inside job um, and, and set um, goldstein who's just an amazing brilliant guy who's you know spearheading this whole thing i think they've they're going from city to city around the world and doing these in in person mints and i think berlin was the last one and uh they're moving on to mexico city i believe
1: london was the last London ended just last in july um berlin was in the spring and then mexico city is in november um which i'm planning to planning to attend, which should be a lot of fun oh cool There, uh, the, are the auction for the the mint passes is on friday
0: Oh wow! Yeah, that's going to be go fast.
1: But yeah, so so in terms of the, so how so so yeah, so I, I got super into especially art box and generative art and NFTs, um, photography NFTs. Uh, more recently, have been doing a lot on Tezos as well, which I think is a really interesting art scene in particular. Um, and back in the fall, I had an, an, an initial conversation that was just sort of friends catching up with a former. Uh, someone who was my colleague at the DNC, and then he was my boss, and then I got his job when he left. Um, and Patrick Schmidt, who was one of the co-CEOs at a company called Free Will, which works on, um, it started out as helping helping nonprofits raise more money through planned giving, through um, which is to say when people die, some money given through wills. And, you know, the basic idea there is if you go to freewill.com, you can make a will for free. When you do so, you'll be asked to leave a bequest to charity, just leave some portion of your, of your estate.
0: Right, to a nonprofit or a charity that you like. Yeah,
1: so some, yeah. What someone you choose. Um, and the, the, the core insight there is that a lot of people don't leave money to charity when they die. And some pretty substantial chunk of those people would if they had a will and if they're, when they made the will, they were asked. Right. Yeah. And so this is about making sort of a, a, an easy way for people to make a legal will, and then some chunk of those people decide to leave the quest, and there we go. Um, yeah, yeah. And then free will was thinking about expanding into other, other ways to facilitate non-cash giving for nonprofits, because it's a need they were hearing from the nonprofits and the charities, right, who want to be able to take gifts of stock, gifts of crypto more easily, um, and want people to be able to give those gifts more easily. Um, yeah. And so they were thinking about expanding into crypto when we got chatting, um, and that was last back in the fall of last year. And then in the spring we were sort of chatting further. It's like, oh, hey, thinking about NFTs. We're thinking about all this stuff. Why don't? Why don't we see if there's there's something there, um, and I could sort of come in and and try and help.
0: Yeah. That's great. Um, I do want to go back just a little bit because there's—I wouldn't call it a precedent to this, but it's a great story. Um, I, I was—I was, was reminded of it as I was reading on your blog. Um, it's the Pineapple Fund. Uh, it was the, the anonymous Reddit post. Um, Is a Bitcoiner who'd made a lot of money. Can can you tell us that story? Because I, I love this story.
1: So my my rough, it's not a story I have perfect recall on, um, but my my sense. My my recollection is that I know we, we wrote it up on the blog, but I don't remember every detail. Um, it was basically someone said, you know, I've made a bunch of money in Bitcoin and like, what should I do with it? Right. And then there were a bunch of different. Um,
0: and so he opened it up. He like had a application process and all sorts of different exactly. nonprofits and charities and, and people uh, all applied and he gave away a lot of, yes, of bitcoin seven millions of dollars and, yeah and that was in 2017 so that, that was a little little bit early here so tell people like why, so just run us through like yeah, sure. why why you know yeah uh, how can this help people that maybe you know have a lot of uh, have some extra money here and don't want to have it all go to the irs
1: so so there's there's two main there's like i'd say there's like, there's three main reasons why people choose to donate in crypto Right. One is convenience. It's just it's they have assets in crypto and it's easy if I don't have to do anything other than just send it right from my MetaMask or whatever. So that's one. Um, Another is I think a lot of people are interested in donating in crypto as opposed to cash to help spur adoption and acceptance. Right. It's helping to change the public image of the crypto space as one filled with scammers and monsters into one filled with people just trying to do some good in the world. Um, and then the third is tax savings, right? I think the first two kind of stand, stand are, are relatively self-explanatory. Yeah. Um, but on the tax savings front, the basic idea is that donating appreciated non-cash assets is enormously tax advantaged, especially and, and primarily if you have held those assets for more than 12 months. Uh, and the, the basic idea is Imagine you bought ten dollars of Bitcoin in 2016, which is now worth hundred dollars. I don't actually know if that's the right multiple, but for yeah. the sake of for, you know for the for the sake of the uh, of easy numbers. So if you sold that hundred dollars of Bitcoin to cash to donate it, you would then owe long-term capital gains tax on the ninety dollars of appreciation from ten to hundred dollars. Um, you would then you could then get a tax deduction for your donation of hundred dollars, but you'd still owe that capital gains tax mm-hmm. if however you donate the bitcoin directly to charity you get the same hundred dollar deduction while owing nothing in capital gains tax yeah. so you of you can you can avoid taxation on your 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 gains basically if you donate if you donate the asset directly if you've held it more than a year if you've held it less than a year it's not particularly tax-advantaged. Um, you know, you, you basically, there your deduction becomes the lesser of what you paid for it or what it's worth. Um, so it doesn't really matter. If it's, if it's gone up in value, it's perfectly reasonable to donate it directly or to sell it, you know, it's slightly, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, if it's gone down in value, you're better off selling it to cash because then you can book a tax loss and then donating the remainder. Um, but, and that's, and that's also true of NFTs, right? So you can donate an NFT. if you can find someone like say crypto for charity who can help you, um, donate an NFT directly and you've held it for more than a year, you can harness the same benefit. So we're having a conversation actually with, a an owner of some crypto punks right now who wants to, think think about donating one of them, um, which, which is actually kind of a great way to, you know, if you're one of these people with, you know, you mentioned thirty, back yeah. in twenty seventeen. You know, yeah. you could donate one a year, and then just automatically knock two hundred k or whatever of liability off of your taxes. Yeah,
0: it's, it. I, it made me wonder: what do you guys do then? With like, let's say you get a CryptoPunk, do you you don't ho- do you hold it, or do you we try to turn it. around and sell it?
1: So okay. yeah, so so there is a nonprofit called so the the, so the, the, the company under which crypto for charity sits is called Free Will. There's a nonprofit called Free Will Impact Fund, which we work very closely with, um, <laughs> who which is the recipient of any donation. Right. And so, so Free Will Impact Fund is a 501c3. Um, Free Will Impact Fund gets the donation and then um acts as a donor-advised fund and then like grants out um to directly to other charities. And so um the the basic function is you know, whether it's an NFT or ETH, a Free Will Impact Fund wallet receives the donation, you get a donation receipt from Free Will Impact Fund, and then that gets liquidated to cash and then sent as a cash transfer to another 501c3 okay. as as per sort of Got instructions and, and rules and regulations.
0: And I, I would assume you know this maybe from your personal history, but I, I would also guess that you might be getting in touch, or people are getting in touch with you who've been around a long time in crypto and and have an amazingly appreciated portfolio and and need to do something about it because, I know you know if, if you've been around long enough, you, you know people who got ETH at the at the you know for th- for thirty cents or whatever you know or twelve. I think I bought it first at ten dollars. You know I don't have that anymore, but you know it, it's so. How how is that working for you guys? Are you getting like a lot of inbound interest from folks like that?
1: Some yeah, for sure, um, and also a lot of a lot of those folks will often go. They'll have a charity in mind, right? And so they'll approach a the charity, and then charity will say, "That sounds great. I love your money, but you know, can you can you can you make it through here?" So we don't have to change our bylaws for how to like accept crypto, because um, that's the, the other the nice thing, right? So it's it's something like crypto for charity, which is I should say also zero fee. Right. So we so every you know, we we do the liquidation on Gemini or FTX, depending on the coin Mm -hmm. or the asset. And so and we will, you know, everything less like whatever Gemini takes as transaction fee gets sent on. Um, And so it's cheaper than a credit card donation. Right. In terms of what what gets what the actual charity gets in the end. And so so part of it is making it easy for people to make donations. But a lot of a huge part of it is just making it easy for the charities to, um, to accept it, right? When, when yeah. we, did, we did some survey research with charities last year when we were figuring out what to do, and the kind of the overwhelming response was some version of, I know we should figure out crypto, but I have no desire to figure out actually crypto. I just would love to figure out how to take it.
0: And I thought this was really smart. I read on your site that you can generate a unique wallet for somebody like like a charity like that. And so they don't have to do anything. Exactly. They, they don't have to do it themselves. And then you can still donate to that charity. And then I guess you guys would liquidate it and send them the cash. Exactly.
1: And a lot yeah. of what we're doing with the, with that is, you know, there's there's lots of one-time donations. So people just sort of come in the front door and and say, you know, I want to donate to my local animal shelter. Mm-hmm. Um there's also sort of cause funds we put together so a you know mix of four or eight or 12 groups working on a specific issue right a lot of people are like how do i choose between the environmental groups and it's like here's here's eight in one in one you know in one transaction um and but and the other thing that we're doing is a lot of you know one of the biggest drivers of charitable giving in crypto is nfts right is NFT platforms or artists or um, sort of new projects that want to devote X percent of primary and or secondary royalties Mm -hmm. to charity. Um, And often, some of the biggest donations we've received are from projects that made those commitments, got the money, and they're like, okay, how do I find someone? (laughs) How how can I find someone to take my salon? Right? Um, And so we certainly can help at that stage. But we're also trying as much as possible to get um, into relationship with um, artists and projects earlier so they can just plug that address right into the, the drop contract, right? And so you're getting...
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You can the, the beauty of a smart contract is you can have that in the, the contract itself, exactly. right? So it's pretty
1: seamless. And that is um, tax-wise kind of a wash because it's like, you know, they can get the money in and then donate it or they can just donate it directly. But from an administrative standpoint, it is very much not a wash because when it's in the contract, they don't receive the money right It's like it never came to me i don't need to account for the income I don't need to deduct against it it's just it was never mine um, and so it can make life much easier for some of these projects that otherwise have will have some headaches with and especially if you're you know, if you're making a, a donation of several hundred thousand dollars, as has been the case that's a that then requires like an appraisal and it's you know, just a fair bit of documentation you're going to need to, to actually claim that.
0: What are you guys seeing? You know, in this downturn, have, have things slowed for you, or are, is it is it counterintuitive, like more people giving, or how how, how what's your view?
1: But there are there are countervailing effects, right? So there is very much the there's very much the the effect of I'm in in the bowl of I'm flush, I got some money, I want to get some away, um, right? The, the most generous people, just like societally as humans the most generous people are people without much money. And so the actually most generous, like the most generous people in absolute terms are people who recently did not have that much, much, that much money, but now do, right? Because then you still have that very generous mindset and a sense of giving back. Um, the flip side is that when you're holding something you think is gonna take you to the moon, you're kind of loath to let it go, right? Whereas in the bear, there's definitely people feeling more constrained and tighter. But the flip side is there's a lot of stuff that you're like, whatever, just get this out of my wallet. I don't really care, you know? Um, and so it's, it's, it's hit or miss. It has it has definitely slowed a little bit in some areas. I think we're getting sort of a little bit less just like people coming in wanting to donate some BTC, but we're getting, I'd say, a bit more traction on the NFT side. Um, and so... Different projects wanting to to plug this in directly and finding it. It's also one of those things where, kind of, as with as with wills, if you can ask someone at the right moment in their creative process of getting an NFT project off the ground, they'll be very happy to to do five or ten percent where they might not otherwise have thought to do so. Um, And so, part a big part of our our thought process and frankly my day to day efforts are about getting to figuring out ways to get people at, at, at that right moment. Um, there's one there's one other tax thing that I want that I remember that's worth saying, which is if, if you're in that scenario of, of you have the appreciated asset um, that you could donate and not be taxed on the gains, and you're also someone who was otherwise thinking about making a donation to charity, you sh- you are, you would be better and have that you know that donation from cash or whatever, you would be better off donating that amount of the appreciated asset, and then using the cash to buy back in an equivalent amount, and thereby reset your cost basis of that amount, right? So in the Bitcoin example from before, where you paid 10 bucks for what is now $100 of Bitcoin, let's say you also had $100 of cash that you were planning to donate to Oxfam. You know, you can make the donation with $100 cash, get your deduction for $100, you still have your Bitcoin with a cost basis of 10. Or you can make the donation with Bitcoin, buy $100 of Bitcoin, you get the same $100 tax reduction, but now your Bitcoin has a cost basis of current market value of $100, which means you'll have less, you'll owe less in tax later on when you go to sell.
0: Yeah, because, yeah, you're starting from a higher level, so less capital gains um, effect. Okay. Awesome. Well, um, Ben, tell, tell everybody how they can find you and, and how they can start donating all their NFTs and, and whatnot.
1: <clears throat> so, so cryptoforcharity.io um, is is the website and platform um, where you can donate directly. You can pull a wallet address directly for yourself for your next NFT drop. There's You can find us on Twitter at Crypto for Charity. Um, there's a link from the website. Um, we have a We've got support discord, um, which there's not a, a ton of, of sort of, you know, action and, and community, but it's just kind of there for asking questions and help. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at zero X Simon says, um, it is about half crypto for charity and half my generative art collecting. Um, <laughs> uh, and so you can see, you know, a lot of it these days is, is Tezos flavored, um, with some ETH, ETH thrown in, I got a, um, it's become a bit of a Zancan fan account, He's um, one of the, the top artists on on Tezos. Um, and and email. Um, you can reach out to me at Ben at cryptoforcharity.io. Um, and would, you know, we're sort of very eager to to help with, with anything you got.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, ben Simon, thank you so much. As I said at the beginning, uh, you're one of the good guys. And I think this hour has proven that out um, quite, quite extensively. So thank you very much for coming on and uh, good luck with everything you guys are doing at Crypto for Charity.
1: Matt, thank you. It was, my, it was my pleasure to be here.
0: That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at Desential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io, and on Twitter at Desential. Have a great day.